Let's pray. Loving God, enable us to sit with those words, feel the weight of how much they reflect the realities of our world and our own lives. Help us to recognise our place within it and even more so how you are at work. For your spirit enable us to respond in ways which puts us on the right path, the path that you lay before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been driving along the side of the road and you get those signs coming up saying that there's some work ahead? So you slow down to 40 and to 25 and then you see the work ahead, a group of workers. Well, at least you see one person working surrounded by a group of advisors who are providing a commentary on what ought to be happening and giving all sorts of helpful advice or not. And uh, I guess it's often the case that in uh, parts of our life we may know those experiences where we're trying to get a job done, we know what we're doing and someone else is providing very helpful advice to us. I don't know, just occasionally there might be someone else in our car who's giving us some suggestions of how we might drive. I'm not going to comment any further on that one. But we all know what it's like when people, for one reason or another, are full of advice. I wonder at times whether that's actually how we are with God. Some of our prayers can sound an awful lot like God, I'm not telling you how to do your job, but it would be terrific if this and this and this and this would happen. And I wonder how God feels when we, he receives our advice. You know, I think sometimes God would chuckle, saying, yep, that's an interesting thought. That's not going to happen. I know something a lot better. It does test the patience quite a bit as we go through it. A number of years ago, I was teaching a uh, special religious education class in New South Wales. I remember it still quite vividly, Year 8 class. And it was a, it was a lesson that I did from time to time where I'd ask the question, if, if, uh, what is wrong with the world? You know, one of those open-ended questions. And it doesn't take long before the whole whiteboard will be filled with all sorts of things that are happening. You know, wars and invasions and poverty and... So the list all goes on. And sadly, our news feeds are just full, disproportionately perhaps, of a whole lot of those different types of statements. So we filled the whole wall with people who lie and people who can't be trusted and those who abuse and those who are bully and those who didn't keep their promises. And so the list all goes on. And I reckon about 90 to 95% of the list that we would come up with would be either things that are directly caused by people or they are uh, worsened by the differing resources we have available. Even some of the, what you might call natural things, like earthquakes and floods and tsunamis and things, some nations, some societies are able to mitigate against those things and come away much less scathed than others as well. So we look at that list 
then I would ask the question, and I know for some of you I've done this before, but bear with me because it leads into where we're going today. Looking at that list and realising how much it's caused by people. So if you were God, what would you do? And often there's a few quick suggestions that go up and say, oh, make all the bad people do the right thing. Okay, that's fine. So who are the bad people? When you get down to, well, the people who do the really, really bad things, they ought to be judged. And that's true. I don't know how you found it when I read that psalm, which I set um, uh, months ago, actually, for this, this Sunday, about those who, uh, who murder widows and children and the defenceless. And I was struck by that is actually happening in our world with bombs being targeted on places where civilians, not just civilians, but the most vulnerable are gathered. It's awful. So with the psalmist, we cry out, Lord, aren't you aware of this? What are you going to do? These are very real questions. The problem is, is that when you begin to point over there and saying, well, those people need to be sorted out, and I think that group over there, they need some attention, we get to realise that actually it isn't as neat as those people over there. Somewhere along the line, we need to look in the mirror at ourselves and realise, as the quote I used a few weeks ago from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that line that separates good from evil runs through every human heart. And just where it's placed will vary from time to time, from person to person. But none of us can look at that and say, I don't contribute to that. The second reading we had from Matthew's Gospel makes it absolutely clear when we think we're just going about our work and we're not offending anyone, but our failure to respond to those around us and to needs, not just our own neighbourhood, but our own Pacific nations, our neighbours, and further afield. We're part of a global community. Actually, we can't just say, well... We are innocent of all that process. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this um, series, looking at God's mission plan revealed. And it's going to go for some time yet because it's a big mission plan. It is so rich, it has so many different dimensions to it. But we've summarised it by this phrase, shalom in the sanctuary of God. Shalom does mean peace, but it means so much more than peace. It means exactly as God intended creation to be and to become. All that is good in creation, flourishing and growth and wholeness and people being able to put their gifts to good use and others benefiting from it and people looking out for each other. That is God's intention for this world. And humanity, male and female, are created to lead the way in that work. The sanctuary of God is the garden of God, the place that it surrounds where God's presence is felt. It's a place of, of uh, stillness and of life-giving energy, vitality, of flourishing in that space. But as we've seen in the last few weeks, we look at the world around us and realise, well, the world is not like that. And it isn't just nations overseas. It's in our own neighbourhood. It's in our own city. It's in our own nation. So we look at that and think, well, what is God going to do when he looks out 
and sees the mess that we make of this world, how much we fail in what God is expecting and asking of us to do. We look at Genesis 6, the first reading we had, we see God's answer. God looks at that mess, looked at the society and how the disobedience that started with Adam and Eve and spread to the family through Cain killing his brother Abel and then has gone out to whole communities and societies is just permeating everything. And our translation is a little bit better than some. Some translations say, well, God was sorry that he created humans. Our translation said, well, God regretted he created humans. The actual term is God repented. God looked at his creation and the creation of humanity and said, what have I done? They're causing such disruption, such a mess. I should start again. I'll wipe this out. Now, I remember a number of years ago, that class that I was talking about when I asked those year eight students, what would you do if you were God? It made all sorts of suggestions about you know, making people do this and coming down and judging other groups and we sort of work through that that's not quite as easy as it sounds because once you bring through and call everyone to account, that leaves us all in a pretty bad space. I remember one boy putting his hand up and he said, Sir, you know, if I was God, I would send a flood and just wipe it all out and start again. He had no idea about the biblical narrative because that's exactly what God said. Creation was the separation of water and the land emerging as a place of habitation. To bring a flood is the reverse creation. It's almost as if God says, this plan of creation is beyond redemption. Another memory came to me this week. I'm actually having one of those weeks with those vivid memories. And it's, I know I was four and a half because I was the youngest boy in the school at the time. I knew I was the youngest boy in the school because the youngest boy in the school had to carry the bouquet of flowers at the speech night to the people. And I remember that was my big task. In that class in my prep school, I still remember vividly our headmaster, Mr Chalmers, tall, upright gentleman, started in the back of the classroom when you become aware of the headmaster in the classroom. And eventually he came to the front of the class and why he went in this direction, I don't know. Though someone at the 8.30 service said they can recall a similar thing being said to them. But he came forward. And his lesson I have not forgotten. I'm trying to shake it off. <laughs> he said, but is an ugly word. I was relieved to hear that Phil or Sue Harris had a solution for me because Sue's maiden name apparently was but. So she told me, not always. She said, but is an ugly word, and you should never start a sentence with the word but. I'm almost there. I'm getting around to shaking it off after 55 years or whatever it is, down the track. Now sometimes the word but <coughs> is an ugly word. When we hear people giving an apology, whether they be a politician or some public figure or someone who has been called out and has been caught or whatever it may be, when they give a public apology, we can sit there and think, this is important. 
to name what is wrong and to own it. Yet, I decide to switch around from yet as the start of the sentence. If they then move into but as part of the apology, I don't know how you find it, but I cringe. A good apology shouldn't have but in it. You hear it and you think, no, no, don't go there. Because the moment you say but, you begin to say, but what about them? But what about this? What about that? And you begin to try and mitigate, try and reduce responsibility in some way. So there are times when the word but is to be avoided. However, I've got a whole range of words to use at the start of my sentence. (laughs) However, when God uses the word but, it is good. And he uses the word but at the end of our passage that we just had. Having looked at the world and repented of his act of creation of humanity and deciding to wipe out humanity, but God saw Noah and it changed everything. It actually features even more significantly when the flood actually does come. And you know the story where the the rains come and Noah's built the ark and there's a build-up of the rains getting heavier, the water levels rise and they begin to flood more and more. And it's actually written in a beautiful sort of palistrophic structure. It's actually, it works the way a flood works. It builds up to a, a significant um, uh, point in which you might say is the peak of the flood. And a, just a handful of words at that moment change the whole direction. But God remembered Noah. And the whole course of the flood changed directions. The rains eased, the water levels went, and the land re-emerged. Next week when we look at our passage, we'll be looking at the time after that as God recommits himself to creation and to ensuring that the goals of creation will be reached as well. So when we hear and look at the news and we see the stories and we recognise the messiness and in the season of Lent we even examine ourselves and recognise there is a lot that's just inexcusable. None of us can stand and say, look, we've uh, gone about our life the way God intends us to do in its entirety. We're this complex mess, mixed between good and bad. But God remembers his promises. But God is not absent from this world. But God will remember those who perpetrate violence and bring about acts of war. And God will remember those who have suffered because of bullying and of abuse. Because God's purposes is not to reject and to do it away, but to go deep, like the flowers that we have in the tree that we have... uh, Um, been using as our symbol in recent times. The deep roots that enable us to go through one season to another, to discover health and to recognise, that's actually the wrong, that was last week's sermon, here we go. Go back to that one, sorry about that. Um, God actually wants to go deep within us, to reshape our hearts, our desires, what makes us tick, so that we do desire what is good and what is right and it begins to excite us and energise us 
and we want to commit ourselves to doing that and to join the company of others and encourage each other in that space. And the calling is that that should start within the life of the church. We should be, we should be the beacon of light demonstrating what that looks like in very real terms as we have time for people. We look out for those who have uh, more serious challenges and more difficulties and we look for the young and the old and all ages in between. We realise that life isn't all about us, that God has called us to be about his work. It is in that context that we can hear that godly but. God remembers. God is present. God is at work. God will see that work through to the goal that he has called. Is it easy? Well, we're going to see in the next few weeks as we look at the episode of Easter. It is far from easy. And it is costly. But there is hope. There is resurrection. There is new life. The baptisms we had this morning actually symbolises that rising out of that depth of the waters into the life, the new life, clothed with Christ as well. I can now use that word, but more happily, especially when I know that I'm echoing the great, but God remembers, acts, is to be trusted. Just encourage you to hear that in your head as we look at the news as we look at our world, as we look at ourselves. God is there. Amen.